Okay, people of the internet, all tribes and all nations, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, we're going to jump right back into it. If you haven't listened to the last episode, this is going to kind of be linked to the things we talked about with Brian Zond, and in particular with uh, the ideas around Fred Nietzsche. And don't you like just referring to him as Fred? He sounds more gentle that way. So we're going to talk more about Fred Nietzsche and atheism, and I'm going to give you a few thoughts about all of that. But I wanted to start with one of the most famous quotes by Mr. Fred. God is dead. God remains dead. We have killed him. How shall we, the murderers of all murderers, comfort ourselves? What was holiest and most powerful of all that the world has yet owned has bled to death under our knives? Who will wipe this blood off of us? What water is there for us to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement? What sacred games shall we have to invent? And so the point I was trying to make last episode, I continue to make here, is that in a way Nietzsche was right. We have invented sacred games. Namely, we have sacralized sacrifice. And our traditional American Christian translations tell us to stay within the boundary lines of that sacralized sacrifice. And so if I haven't got enough people upset at me already, I'll just refer to the very first sermon on Billy Graham's website. Like if you go to his website right now and you pull it up, you can read the first sermon. And yes, it's crazy crazy for me to reference Billy Graham because he's basically the paragon of American evangelical morality. And I'm sure he was a great person. So I don't mean this to be anything personal, nor do I mean it to be something like, oh, I'm much smarter than Mr. Graham. I don't know any of all that. The point is, I just don't completely agree with this theology. And for me, it's built upon statements like this. God will not tolerate sin, he says. He condemns it and demands payment for it. God could not remain a righteous God and compromise with sin. His holiness and his justice demand the death penalty. So, quote, unquote. So, to be clear, I just don't think God is into the death penalty. And I know that flies in the face of what most of American Christianity thinks. And again, that's why some people don't like me as much as they used to. But I just don't think God is into death like that. And to borrow a Nietzschean phrase, I think we really need to untranslate the misconception. And the misconception is that God is into sacrifice and into death. And so we got to untranslate that. Uh, we have to deconstruct it. We have to rebuild our churches, our theologies, our religion, our society. Oh, by the way, podcasts and my own personal life. And I think we have license to do this because the early church wasn't preaching the death penalty, at least not in the punitive, vengeful way we tend to think of the death penalty in Americanized Christianity today. The early church wasn't preaching a sacrificial salvation. For example, none of the apostles in Acts are preaching, God demands the death penalty. And since we're taking swipes at the sacred games we've invented over the years, the earliest sermons really weren't about hell either, at least in the way we think of hell. If you think the point of Christianity is to save people from a post-mortem afterlife full of punishment and torture, well, then the sermons in the book of Acts, they all miss the point of Christianity, because that's not what they're talking about. American Christianity, built on generations of misrepresentation of God and sacrificial theology, told us that these things were the gospel and that anything else is heresy. But it's just not true. Um, these men in the book of Acts 
And then you got the early church theologians, the Irenaeuses, the Origins, the Athanasiuses. <laughs> These guys weren't preaching death penalty and hell punishment, literal fire, torture kind of stuff. So, yes, I do think we should take our cue from Fred here and untranslate the misconception. Now, I would untranslate it different than Nietzsche, but before we get there, I just want to affirm the fact that I take what Nietzsche has to say seriously, in part because I think Nietzsche took Christianity seriously, which is more than I can say about, let's say, the modern-day atheists who it seems to me, and I'm, try, I'm not trying to be disrespectful to them, but it seems to me who are not taking Christianity seriously. So, for example, while Nietzsche saw the similarities to other religions, like that Christianity had some common denominators with other religions, namely in things like the murder of a deity, his interpretation was that Christianity was different uh, in that it promoted a weak God and weak people. And he thought this part of it was wrong. You should read David Bentley Hart if you're interested in this. So DBH, who is the master of verbosity, says it better than me. And I quote from one of his books. There were many things that drew anarchists to Nietzsche. His hatred of the state, his disgust for the mindless social behavior of herds, his anti-Christianity. He despised Christianity in large part for what it actually was, above all, for its devotion to an ethics of compassion, rather than allowing himself the soothing, self-righteous fantasy that Christianity's history had been nothing but an interminable pageant of violence, tyranny, and sexual neurosis. He may have hated many Christians for their hypocrisy, but he hated Christianity itself, principally on account of its enfeebling solicitude for the weak, the outcast, the infirm, and the diseased. I want to write like David Bentley Hart one day. My point is, it appears that the modern atheist just hasn't taken time to understand Christianity in this way. For example, I cite somebody like Sam Harris, who in all honesty is probably the only real kind of quote-unquote modern-day atheist that I've spent much time reading or listening to. I remember listening to his discussion with Jordan Peterson on a podcast a few months ago, and this is not a defense of all things Jordan Peterson. There's a lot of things I like about J.P., some other things I don't necessarily like. But in this public debate, Harris at one point intimates that love isn't evidence of anything transcendent or metaphysical. And so Jordan, Peter, Jordan Peterson asks him to prove that statement. And unbelievably, Harris actually ignores the question and tries to argue that the effects of love can be scientifically proven. Even though he said love can be proven, he goes on to talk about the effects of love. And to me, it was a stunning show of both arrogance and stubbornness. Stunning because Harris is a best-selling author. I mean, he sold hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of books. I don't know. He's got hundreds of thousands of followers. And he's on stage with one of the best-selling authors in Jordan Peterson in the whole world. Hundreds of thousands of people are listening to this podcast alone, not to mention just his books and all the other things he's had to say. And he blatantly misses the point, and no one seems to call him out on it. Look, I'm not necessarily trying to say that I'm more intelligent than Sam Harris any more than I was trying to say I'm more intelligent than Billy Graham. 
I'm just saying in Sam Harris's case, for a guy who makes a living off of being an intellectual, it, it doesn't make any sense to me how he misses the point so much. He describes every episode of violence or injustice in Christian history as a natural consequence of Christianity's belief system. I've heard him say that on more than one occasion. This is obviously false. And he goes on to say the history of now 2,000 years of Christianity basically laying its life down for the weak. Okay, to be specific, that is, its care of widows and orphans, its hospitals and hospices, its schools and universities, its medical missions, its relief organizations, its soup kitchens, its charity and compassion. He's saying that all of that can be attributed to normal expressions of human kindness without any connection at all to Christianity, which historically is just preposterous to say. I mean, again, you may not like Christianity, but it's preposterous to try to divorce all those things I just mentioned from Christianity. But Nietzsche didn't take that path. He saw Christianity for what it was. I mean, he didn't like it. He didn't like the fact that it promoted hospitality and grace and mercy and elevated the weak, you know, and flipped the whole thing on its head. But he at least was honest about what it was. One of the more amazing things that I've read from Sam Harris, I've also heard him say this, is to go ahead and denigrate all religion and to gain hundreds of thousands of followers while he does it. And if it sounds like I'm jealous, it's true. I probably am. So with that confession out of the way, it's remarkable to me to hear him denigrate all religion, but then turn around and promote the idea of Buddhism and meditation. So he's declaring all dogma wrong, except his own thoroughly dogmatic attachment to non-dualistic contemplative mysticism, which, of course, naturally he characterizes as scientific and rational. Putting aside that it's disingenuous to claim all religion is bad, only to tout your own brand of religion, let's just get back to science for a moment. If you really want to study a particular thing, if you want to gain empirical evidence, then go ahead and enter into it. Try it out. I think it should be a requirement. Before you call yourself an atheist, you have to live the Sermon on the Mount for at least 90 days. That should be like the entry point. Do it for 90 days, give it a genuine shot, and then see what you think. Ah, but lest you miss the point, let me more adamantly claim that I think Christians, before they call themselves a Christian's, should have to live the Sermon on the Mount for 90 days and see what they think. In the end, I don't really blame the atheists for trying to find something better than Christianity because they've far too often been exposed to a Christ-less Christianity. And they have seen better than most of us how we've created sacred games to keep us bound to a type of, I don't know, like fixed morality rather than living a dynamic life. So, look... All power to Sam Harris. If you want to be a Buddhist, that's great. I personally don't have any problem with it. I just think it's not correct thinking. I think it's disingenuous. I think it's the very essence of hypocrisy to build your life upon the tenet of tearing down all religion only to turn around and promote a religion. It doesn't make any sense to me. And of course, his point, to be fair to him, is that no Buddhism really isn't a religion. And it can be proven by science to be something someone chooses of a rational mind. I think all those same things could be said 
about Christianity. But the point I'm trying to make here is Nietzsche didn't exactly see it those particular ways. Again, Nietzsche saw Christianity for what it was. He, he just didn't like it. And I would respect Harris and others if they just did that. Like it would be fine for me if the new atheist just said, hey, you know, Jesus did this particular thing not to be dogmatic, not, a, not to set up a particular religion or to tell people how to live or to be moral. He did the thing that he did because he gave his entire life to it. He was asking others to give their entire life to it. And that's why I respect Nietzsche, because I think Nietzsche saw that that's what Christ was doing. The irony is, is that Nietzsche may have been more like Christ than the church in this respect, because Christ wasn't arguing for a set of morals. He was, he was living and preaching and teaching and inviting us into a way of life. I can't tell the atheist what is right exactly. I can't scientifically prove anything. And I don't really care to, because what is that? It's just certainty, and it's another kind of idolatry. But I will say that there are reasonable, intelligent people out there that see in Jesus a pathway to throw off the standard translation. What's the standard translation? Basically, that God needs to kill in order to hand out peace. I think a much more reasonable and intelligent interpretation of the death of Jesus is more of a Girardian interpretation, and that is, is that Jesus dies as a victim, and when he does, it's connected to all the victim, all the victims that came before him. In fact, all the gospel writers explicitly link the death of Jesus to all the previous victims in the sacred scriptures, all the way back to the story of Cain and Abel. And Cain and Abel, you know, the, the murder of Abel becomes the founding murder of the Hebrew tradition, and then, of course, the Christian tradition, because Christianity comes out of the Hebrew tradition. And Rene Girard will talk a lot about founding murders in all different cultural religions. So Cain and Abel is that founding murder story for the Hebrews and then subsequently for Christians. Untranslating the misconception, I think, means to gain ears and eyes to hear and to see a better story. And I could be wrong, but I happen to think that there's a whole lot of people out there that would benefit and and would think that it is a better story to see what Girard and others are saying. And that is that the violence in the passion story and the crucifixion story doesn't need to be attributed to God. It needs to be attributed to us. So maybe I'm rambling a bit, but I guess I want to say if you're an atheist, and the primary reason you reject Christianity is because of a God needing death in order to give away forgiveness to you is a ludicrous concept. Well, get in line, man, because I think that I reject that kind of Christianity too. And I got there not because of the church, really. I actually almost got there in spite of the church. I mean, my skepticism kind of grew in the middle of it all. It's really fascinating. That's for a whole nother story. But I'd like to think, and I think this is true, that all of it was a byproduct of love. And the more I pursued love, the more love asked me to reconsider some things. And while I certainly don't consider myself a prophet, I think it's true to say that when you look back through the sacred text, and not only the, the scriptures of the Hebrew tradition and Christianity, 
but also other sacred texts from other religions, the little that I know, that prophets have always been skeptical of the status quo, of the systems who benefit the people within the system, and that much of that, maybe all of that, has to do with love. So if there's a hope of all of this, I think it's love and living the way of Christ who was the embodiment of love. Not necessarily living out particular tenets of a specific religion. By the way, which is what Bonhoeffer was writing about? He wrote about a religion-less Christianity. And it's funny because the American evangelical loves to quote Bonhoeffer from time to time. And yet, I think a lot of what Bonhoeffer was talking about is in direct conflict with with the American evangelical, because he's talking about a religionless Christianity. And we could take this a whole nother path. That doesn't mean, by the way, that a particular religion is necessarily wrong. In some ways, I'm to the point now where I think all religions in some way are wrong. So I'm not trying to get to the place where it's funny. I do see in all religions some common denominators that I really like. But I don't think the point is to try to blend them all together and to say, oh, you know, we're in a particular religion because it's the right thing for us. I think maybe the opposite is true, that maybe we're in the wrong religion for us and that the goal is to stay in our particular religion and to feel the tension of that thing and the disturbance of all of it, to feel the texture in the middle of it and to find a, find a way to express love and to be love in the middle of all that tension <laughs> we should probably do an episode on that, but the point is that Bonhoeffer wrote about religionless Christianity, and he knew it to be the only real melody in a cacophony of religious noise out there. So yes, may the Christian live like Christ. I think that's the real hope. And meanwhile, thank you to the atheist for helping us untranslate the misconception that God needed us to kill. The reality is people needed to kill for God, but God didn't need them to kill for him. Of course, Christianity is not the only ideological system that has encouraged people to kill. It's not really new information, but we're always seeking gods in whose name we can commit some absurd atrocity, even when the gods aren't even normal, like socialism or manifest destiny or the honor of the tribe or capitalism. All these things are quote-unquote you know, not really normal gods, but we use all of them to kill other people. We kill for all kinds of reasons. Money, land, revenge, hate, ambition, a better future. It's all broken. It's all selfish, messed up, and wrong. And Jesus is the only figure I know who identified with those being killed and not those doing the killing. So the misconception is that God's upset with us and that our uneasiness we feel around the divine, around the holy, around divinity, is evidence that God is upset and that we need something to make us whole and complete. And so God wills the death of his son in order for us to believe in him, and that will fix us. That's the misconception. But nothing untranslates that misconception quite like just spending time with Jesus, reading about what he did, how he showed up, how he preached, and who he hung out with. And in particular, the way that he died, in particular, when he cries out, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is evidence that God himself has experienced forsakenness, that love itself is wounded. And so the point is back to 
don't try to make yourself complete and whole with this thing because you literally can't. This thing I'm talking about, love, is full of holes itself. And so you can't fill yourself up with something that's full of holes. You will leak all the time. It's a continual process of coming back to the water of life, to the well again and again, to recognize that you're human and that you live in this texture, this tohu wabohu, that is life, an anti-life that's happening all around you, that's, yes, happening in the very fabric of who you are, but that God loves you. Uh, more than that, God is love. So keep following that thread, my atheist friend. Lay down your arrogance and keep on going. And may I say the same thing to the Christian. Keep following that thread, my Christian friend. Lay down your arrogance and just keep on going. Thanks for being a part of the episode today. Hope you're doing well in the middle of all this wild times. Would encourage you to be careful about how much you read and watch and peruse the television and social media. There's a lot of stuff out there that I think is put out there out of fear and insecurity and anxiety. And I've even noticed a lot of people doing podcasts, even like myself. And I've tried to be honest about this the whole time. Like for me, a great deal of the reason I do what I do is to try to help me articulate what I think. It forces me. It's kind of like writing. This podcast is something of an audio journal. It forces me to articulate what I believe. And so some of it's for me. Uh, I can honestly say some of it's for you too, because I have people that almost every single week, probably on average every single week, someone emails me with questions and thoughts and ideas. I mean, just last week, People were emailing me, asking me about particular authors to read, you know, what I believed about hell, whether I called myself a Christian, and all of that stuff fuels me and helps me and it motivates me. But again, a lot of it's for myself, too. I've noticed listening to certain podcasts, to watching certain news segments, that it seems to me like a great deal of what's going on is that person just needs to say particular things to help them cope, which I think is fine. But I think we should be careful about all of that. We should be really careful about the stuff that we're bringing into our bodies, into our eyes and ears, that we're digesting, you know, emotionally. The culture around us is so strong and we're all infected. We're all, so to speak, marked by the beast that it's really easy to get caught up in the fear and in coping in particular ways that certain people are. And the encouragement today is for you to learn how to cope as God would want you, as love would want you. And sometimes that means unplugging and just trying to sit in the silence and in the tension and grieve the things that you need to grieve, to hear your own voice, to hear how God is speaking in the very midst of who you are, because he's in the midst of you. He's not some objective thing out there. He's already a part of you. Uh, I heard someone say a long time ago, I don't remember where this was, but something to the effect you know, it was some apologetic debate thing, and someone was saying, do you really believe that Jesus was God? And the guy who, of course, was he was more progressive in his thinking, he said, yes, I think Jesus is God, and I think you are God too. And there's something about that that I think is true, 
you kind of have to work through the orthodoxy and the theology and the orthopraxy of the whole thing. But God is in the middle of all of us to the degree that there is a piece of God. Uh, Mother Teresa said, when you look on the face of the other, you look on the face of God. We have that hanging up on one of our plaques in the lobby in the space that we use for our church. Anyhow, the point is to listen to God, the God that's in you, and to really use this time to hone in on that voice and to follow your gifts of discernment and wisdom. And again, just be careful about your intake because so much of it has to do with fear. But we're not people of fear. We're people of love. All right, hang in there. Reach out if there's anything I can do to help or if you have any questions or any things you'd like me to talk about or email you back about. I know some of you have to do this incognito, kind of um, behind the curtains, so to speak, because of the you know situations that you're in with your particular religious institutions. And I respect you and I appreciate what you're doing. So uh, hang in there. God bless. God bless.